data that we should never take our eye off is are we actually connecting with the students to turn them on to physical activity, to help them fall in love with the moving context? Um, and therefore, the key data is, are they actually moving? And are they then over time moving more or moving in a more immersive way or, or, or whatever it is? So it was to try to streamline to go to the important data. and welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. If you are a returning listener, I really want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. If you are a new listener, thanks for taking a chance on my podcast. I really do hope you find value in it and come back to listen to future episodes. The whole idea behind my podcast is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field, whatever that field may be. Whether it be through sport, art, writing, or research, each guest that I have on my show has deeply dedicated themselves to their craft in order to be their best and to make a difference in the world in their own unique ways. I'm very happy to have had Greg Dreyer on my show today. Although I just met Greg a few months ago, we've really connected and have had some great discussions behind the scenes about different aspects of teaching, as well as pedagogical practices that lead to deeper learning in physical education. It's been really great getting to know Greg and having conversations about the work that he does as the director of the Center for Physical Education, Sport and Activity at Kingston University in the UK. Greg is a very thoughtful, reflective person who always seems to be very open and receptive to new learning. Despite having years of experience in the profession, he takes on a beginner's mindset with the way he approaches his own learning and growth. And in today's discussion, we dive into the themes of autonomy, connection, meaning, and purpose as they relate to teaching and learning in physical education. Greg also shares deep insight into the MyMove app, that's M-I-M-O-V-E, MyMove app, that he and his team created that is currently being used by over 130 schools across 20 countries to celebrate and support over 60,000 students' physical activity journeys. Greg discusses how the app got started, the biggest lessons that he and his team have learned about improving the user experience, and how the data from the app can be used by teachers, students, and administrators. You can find Greg's app at mymoveapp.com. That's M-I-M-O-V-E-A-P-P.com. And I highly encourage you to check it out. You can also find Greg on Twitter at Greg underscore Dreyer. It was a really good discussion. 
that I had with Greg, and I look forward to future discussions with him. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. And with that, let's jump right into my chat with Greg Dreyer. Okay, Greg, after a little bit of technical difficulty, actually quite a bit, because uh, for the listeners, we had a wonderful conversation about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, maybe you were in Florence, Italy at the time. Um, I love Italy. So we kind of chatted a bit about Italy and then had this wonderful conversation. And then the, the quality, the sound quality wasn't that great. So rather than put that conversation out there, we decided to just put it aside to and, and brush it up as a great chat and to have a round two, which is now, and we had some technical difficulty, but <clears throat> we are now connected. And I want to thank you for your time and energy and for uh, having this conversation with me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, sorry for all the technical mishaps and uh, back at you really. I, I want to thank you for the contribution you made to the profession and to professional development running this podcast as you do so consistently alongside a teaching job is just awesome and I'm sure I'm not the only one who really appreciates it so thank you yeah no it's um it's a constant learning journey for me and that's why these conversations are so valuable and they're as much for the listener as they are for me and my own professional growth and for clarifying my own thinking about what I believe uh, in regards to education so I'm really happy our friend uh, Aaron Beatley connected us and I'm really grateful for that because you and I have had uh, a lot of discussions uh, on WhatsApp, kind of behind the scenes, sharing our thoughts about many different things related to our profession. So I, I really appreciate the, our connection. And today I want people to learn a little bit about you. And, and I said before hitting record, this is not going to be the first time you're on my show. So I made it very clear. I don't want to feel this pressure to have to cover everything in this episode today. So let's just see where it takes us. And then I know that you and Aaron are going to be on in the future. And then you yourself and, and I will probably have a one-to-one back on the podcast in the future as well. So for the listener, just let's provide some context into who you are and your work. So take it away. Yeah. So currently, um, Director of the Centre for Peace, Sport and Physical Activity at Kingston University, which is just on the southwest outskirts of London. Uh, I've been in higher education since 07, um, and I'm, I started at another university, London Metropolitan, um, and moved to Kingston four years ago. Um, over the last two years, we've also built funded and launched uh, an app called MyMove. Um, I say we, I, I run that away from universities with my with my partner, and we're really excited about where that's going and the impact that it will have. Prior to going into higher education, I was a, a teacher in inner London for 16 years. I, I was managing three phys ed departments, not concurrently, um, but uh, uh, during the course of that time in, uh, I guess, what many people would call challenging inner urban areas. Um, I, there's a lot about that work that I really miss. Um, I found that very rewarding and very fulfilling. And uh, as you mentioned, I learned a huge amount. Uh, and, and before that, I was really lucky to have four years at, at a university um, learning uh, my trade and 
get into form, uh, I guess, the the critical thoughts and coming from a pers- uh, perspective that uh, has sort of held me in good stead, although moved on enormously um, over the course of uh, what's coming up to a 30-year career in physical education. If you think back to early days, the role of physical activity, sport and exercise, and what ultimately sparked your um, inspiration or sparked you to want to uh, pursue a career in, in the physical education health field? Yeah, that's a good question. It was a long time ago now, so <laughs> trying to think back. Uh, you know, I was, I, I guess, pretty typical biography, to be honest, of most people who go into phys ed, certainly most of the, gosh, it must be about 200 student teachers that we've worked with, um, maybe a little bit more, actually, over over 11 years in teacher education. And, you know, most people, myself included, you know, thoroughly enjoyed Sport and it's specifically sport. Uh, I'm I'm no different. I enjoyed team sport. Uh, I was a really keen football player. Uh, in fact, I, I left school and got, was lucky enough to get a full ride to go to a US uh, school for. I stayed there for a year before returning to do my PE, uh, an education degree in in the in the Midlands in Warwick University. So, yeah, I got a lot out of sport and that's all I really wanted to do, I think, as a teenager. and I wanted to look for ways to work in that field. But, you know, I think over time that really shifts. Uh, I'm always really reminded of the old maxim that primary teachers, elementary school teachers love the kids, secondary school teachers, as I was, love their subject. And then university teachers, as I've become, uh, love themselves and people can make up for them in mind whether there's any truth in in that maxim um, but uh, yeah I really loved sport I wanted to hand uh, you know I wanted to hand over the gifts of sport but I think some, one of the key things I've learned is the evangelism uh, and uh, that, that goes with sport and I think people who have had uh, good experiences in and through sport can sometimes uh, see see sport as a panacea for so many problems and so many challenges that young people might have and I think I've really pulled that apart and tried to come to terms with that in my own mind that you know, I, we're not dealing with some magic bullet magic drug that is that solves serious social issues uh, personal issues yes it can give a young person an awful lot I think I'm now rather sceptical about uh, a lot of the conversation around transferability, for example, around learning life skills. I'm not saying it can't contribute to that, but I I think we, as a, I think we probably over-exaggerate it a little bit. Greg, what do you think that, you know, you use the word gifts so that, that sport does bring gifts to people. So what do you consider those gifts to be? Yeah. So, now, um, I, I really think, and I, I think you know, in some you mentioned some of the conversations that we've we've been having, and probably one area that that we connect a lot on is what you would call, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, enabling people to form their personal narratives. And one of the problems that we have with this very top-down um, 
evangelical approach to sport is that because I, as the policymaker or as the teacher or as the coach, because I got X out of sport, then I'm going to teach you, I'm going to work with you so that you get X out of sport. And, and I think we need to be looking at A through Z out of sport. So what those gifts are, it really depends on the recipient and the key thing for us is that they get into the alphabet. If they're not in the alphabet, they're not getting A through Z or they're not getting anything from it. And unfortunately, that's where we, you know, a lot of kids don't get onto the alphabet. And, um, uh, and I think it's because we've picked a few letters from the alphabet and the ones that are obviously massively dominating now, if I've continued, the analogy is H for health and F for fitness and and or C for competitive sport, they're really dominating, and not everyone is going to um, buy into those things. I, I really think the health discourse is very problematic. Um, I think telling young people to do something because it's going to be good for you in thirty or forty years' time, I've never seen any any uh, children's faces light up at the thought of getting into physical activity because it's going to avoid diabetes or heart disease it, it doesn't seem to be particularly motivating so for, I think as professionals uh, our job is to make physical experiences uh, physical activity in all its forms to make it wonderful to make it joyful um, and then if, if it becomes a part of that young person's life and they can use it to support their lives to flourish in and through physical activity then we've done a great job, but I think we spend far too long thinking about the because we're going to do this because it's great for this, or and just give them the gifts. The gift is to be able to organise your life. With my team at university, we we general we be big fans of James McAllister's work, and you know he says arrange your life in such a way that that physical activity can help you flourish. And for us, that's fine. How they flourish, you know. For some kids, I guess for the likes of you and me, it was the thought of the thrill of looking forward to the next contest. That that, and sometimes the looking forward to it was actually better than the contest, and certainly better than the, the period after the contest. So sometimes that's great, and and for other people, it's just you know just feeling good in themselves, or being with their friends, or laughing, or I don't know, yeah. those of things. And you listen to some of my guests, and one of the questions that I really like to ask is this idea of, I used to think, I now think. So when you think of yourself and your trajectory into leadership within our field and how you entered the field many years ago, what did you used to think physical education is based on your understanding back then? And being a lifelong learner, what do you think physical education is now? Yeah, so... Uh, I mentioned that I was really quite fortunate to to go to a good school four years, uh, really getting under the skin of the subject area. So I I learned then, and look, we were taught by a lot of different people, some really experienced practitioners, as well as some good researchers, um, and they weren't all coming from the same place. So yes, of course, there was people there who were peddling the notion of physical education is around skill acquisition and learning the technical competencies that goes with a range of activities. But I learned then that there was enough people who were challenging that for me to know that I didn't know. Uh, and I went into the profession not really knowing. And I think what I know now 
compared to then is um, I, I probably know where to look. I, I probably know which direction to look at, or I feel more confident in where to look. And I think where we look um, is, is from um, huge disciplines, bodies of knowledge that are probably peripheral to physical education. Um, and I th- I'm, I'm now know that it's really exciting when we look to, you know, when we look to psychology, when we look to philosophy, when we look to, um, even when we look to commerce around um, how can we learn to do our job better. So that's probably as certain as I, I can get that the really enjoyable stuff is when we apply new knowledge or draw in knowledge and, you know, some people who I've got huge respect for, you know, that, that's that's essentially, I guess, what they do. You know, Mikhail Kunish said, looking at existentialism and and, and the notion of, of being, um, that, you know, drawing down on Antonovsky's work around what health is and um, we, we, we teach health so that people can be healthy rather than avoid disease. Um, so I find that really fascinating. I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, I, I think one of the things I know now is that essentially physical education is trying to promote a behaviour, and that's that's a huge claim. And sometimes I wonder whether that is a claim that we should be running with, that we're in this to get kids into physical activity. But I can't think of anything better, and it does seem really universal. So if we're in the notion of behaviour, promotion or even behavior change or behavior sustainability then we need to look at the places and the people who do that very very well and that's why i mentioned commerce because i'm not advocating that schools should be run as business or that teachers are commercial beings i'm i'm saying that they make people behave in certain ways um sometimes ways that we don't even know we're behaving in so to try and analyze and learn from you know, whether it be the likes of Apple or McDonald's or, you know, or just business psychology, uh, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, and what, one of the things when I think of you and your work and, and your passion for what you do, and there's a clear passion for what you do that, you know, as you learn more, it just ignites the passion to find out more. But as an academic, you know, and I'm not saying this is you, but many academics get caught in their head, you know, and there is a big difference between the head and the heart. So if you think of that distance between the head and the heart and that web, how do you untangle that distance and that web to communicate from a place that matters to you? Yeah, well, that's a really tough question. I don't think I've ever not... Um, I don't think I've ever managed to divorce the two rightly or wrongly and that's probably why um, I wouldn't consider myself to be a high high profile academic uh, I'm not a high profile academic but that doesn't mean I, I don't really appreciate the role and the contribution of high profile academics I, I really enthuse about their work I really think that some of it is uh, much of it is applicable and we've got a lot to learn basically I think there's there's place for for all the professionals to collaborate and when things work best um, then you know people sort of know their role and are connected to other people in the field so I guess that's the best answer I can have is um, you know since I've been in higher education 
I've always seen myself to be at the junction of practice and, and theory, and that's very much what drives our programs and our teacher education programs. Uh, and if we don't, then we're just replicating time time trusted um, processes and methods that you know most people would acknowledge have not had the best outcomes. Uh, and again, going back to commerce, you know, if 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 McDonald's were had a slump in sales, then they would really review and look at well, what's going on and how do we then, we can't just keep doing the same thing because we're going to keep getting the same outputs. And, you know, Einstein said that's, that's one of the definitions of insanity. And so, you know, unfortunately it does pain me that I do see practice that is really similar to the practice I experienced many years ago as a teenager. And I see lessons that look very similar to that. And I also see pockets of real, quite exceptional practice and really, really deep thinking practice and people who are willing to, I don't really like the term, but take risks. I mean, I, I don't really know what the risk is. For me, the risk is doing the same thing because you know you're going to get the same outcome and that seems far more risky. So embracing, you know, we, we're now te- when our, our student teachers start teacher education and we're introduced to game sense stuff, I say, oh, this is a great new way. And we're like, this is nothing new about this. This has been going on at least since the early 80s. Um, and, you know, so for us uh, as a team, we ask questions about why do they think it's new? They've all been through school. Many of them have been through very related first degrees. And uh, why does this stuff not get traction? And I think there's really, really difficult conversations to have about why physical education and sport to a degree, but more physical education is is so small c conservative, as we'd say. Doing the work that you do, you will see this as well, but there's a there's a huge gap between ideation and implementation. And I had a friend in Japan who listened to the Dr. Richard Ryan podcast, and he's in business. And he's a Canadian running a business, a very successful business in Japan where um, it's all about groupthink and conformity. So in listening to Ryan and his, his company struggling during COVID, he's in the transportation industry. So he's listened to the podcast three times and today he sent me a message to say, as a leader, he really wants to provide his people with an autonomy supportive environment. And that idea of, of giving them everything they need to do their jobs in whatever way they want. And what I said to him is, great. You know, I think the same thing. I mean, Richard Ryan made me think deeply about what true autonomy means and how as educators we can provide an autonomy-supportive environment. So I, I sent my friend a message on WhatsApp to say, implementation is going to be the hardest thing for you. So what are you willing to commit yourself to? And that, I think, is such a great question to think about for me when I think about my own teaching is what am I willing to truly commit myself to? And as you said, there's greater risk in not committing myself to something than committing myself to it. So what is your, um, I don't want to say advice, but insight around that idea of implementation and what teachers need to commit themselves to or may consider committing themselves to 
to um, so-called take the risk to do things a little differently uh, with the best intentions? Yeah, yeah, that's a really huge issue, a huge area. So I think, first of all, anyone in the field who's coming from a critical perspective, and you know, I make no bones about the fact that that's where I come from, I, I am excited by critical theory and the application of that theory. The danger with that is that we divorce the theory um, and it sounds very negative all the time and we don't necessarily understand. The danger is that we fail to understand the context and the pressures in which teachers are working in. And I would really hope that I've never, I've never forgotten that. I worked in that, in that setting for 16 years. I'm not free from constraints working at university. So I've got the utmost empathy with what it can be like to work in a really busy organisation where there's pressures, where there's expectations, where there might be different interpretations of what the very subject is that we're trying to deal with. So... Understanding that, fine. Uh, um, one of the wonderful things that I thought Richard Ryan really clarified was that autonomy is associated with willingness and finding willingness. And for me, that that really resonated because he even went so far, if I remember rightly, to say that autonomy isn't just letting them get on with it. Yeah. And you know, we've seen this misinterpretation. And again, I really understand why that there's not enough investment necessarily or time in professional development to really get under the skin of, of great ideas, ideas that are really going to impact. So the first thing is we, we need to know what it is we're talking about, either via good conduits, um, good sources like your podcast or anywhere that can actually put people in touch with the original thinkers. That's, I think that's really important. So the, con the concept is well-grounded, well-understood before we start trying to run with it. I'm not necessarily saying that's linear. I think you can start running with it as long as you keep reviewing and reflecting and learning at the same time, then you're going to arrive at something that's probably more authentic. But how do we get that willingness? And um, I, I think for me, uh, and this is very much the, the thinking behind the app that we created, that we, we have to hear we have to hear the young people. We have to hear the, the recipients of our services. And we have to make alterations. You know, Richard Ryan's work, for me, really is closely aligned to another uh, person that I've got huge respect for their work. Dylan William, who works with John Hattie. And, you know, he, Dylan William talks about education being, uh, teachers being like pilots. And you have to constantly take readings to make sure that you're on track. And all too often, the pilot would just fly from London to Seattle and tell everyone to get off because the pilot's then got another journey. So uh, for, to take, how do you take the readings? Well, you know, we created a, a my move so that every session, whether it be in lessons or out of lessons that young people are engaging with, the teacher or the coach or the parent can always see how did that feel? Is there any feedback that the young person's giving that is all embedded into the app so I'm not saying using my move is the only way I think it's a pretty good way of seeing where the how the how young people are engaging with physical activity as I said earlier pretty much everyone says that that's the universal goal the universal goal is to get kids into physical activity and you know for me it struck us two two and a half years ago that that we got we've got to close the loop we have to 
know if and how young people are engaging in physical activity so that we can do our job better in supporting them. So um, I'm not sure I really, really answered your question. I think knowing the context, really understanding the, the, ideas, the, the ideas that we're trying to embed and then having good tools available to, to get feedback, I, I, it's probably the best I could come up with right now. Well, when you say close the loop, when I think of teachers wanting to try new things, to me, the most important thing, like I'm going to try something new, so I'm, I'm back to teaching for the first time in six years because of teachers being spread out across our school, and I jumped in and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, so I still have my leadership role, my coaching responsibilities, but now I'm like, hey, man, I better be able to apply everything I've been talking about because if I can't, it's just idealistic thinking, blah, 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 and it means nothing. So I'm about, I'm in a lucky, fortunate position that I only have one grade five class. So, and I have them for the first time face-to-face tomorrow. And I have them for 30 minutes and it's only seven of them. And then I teach the other half of the class in the afternoon, the other seven. And we're in a individual pursuits, throwing and catching unit that we were doing in distance learning. And I'm devoting tomorrow's class to a power walk and talk um, where I want to pose the question to them, what do we want from this experience this year? This is your last year in elementary school. These are the things that I'm supposed to teach you throughout the year. You know, I have to do cycling. We got to do skateboarding. I've got to do movement composition. I've got to do these things, but I want to hear from you. What do you want most from this experience? And I'm willing to take that chance in really honoring their voice. If that means stretching units out a little more, pulling back on units, but really trying to get their voice and take action on it. So I'm clarifying my intention to you as I explain this. But I think sometimes that's what teachers fail to do is, clarify their specific intentions because they have this idea but they they don't clarify it or make it specific and then reflect on that intention and the closing the loop part is reflecting on that intention did it work did it achieve what you wanted to uh, wanted it to achieve so I think for for me that's what I'm trying to do in moving forward with this one class and, and I'm really interested to see where we take it but I just wanted to ask you about that idea of like having clear intentions. And when I say, I don't mean learning intentions. I mean, what is your intention to improve your practice? So what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, yeah, I think, I think your walk and talk tomorrow is going to be fascinating. Uh, and um, I, I guess my, if I pick up on that thread, if, if, if I'm understanding that's where you want the conversation to go. Um, I, I get one, one of the things that I've, I, I still grapple with and I'd, I'd love to hear how you manage that is if we're talking about young people, um, 10 year olds, 11 year olds, 12 year olds, gosh, even 16 year olds, um, how do they know what their preferences are? And what's the role of the educator in both extending those preferences? Um, I, I had a brief 
conversation on Twitter with Justin O'Connor around similar sort of themes. Um, and uh, are, are we just keeping children in their comfort zone because that's what they like? Or, um, and the notion of where preferences come from is really complex, fascinating, but really complex. So how, how do they know? I guess it's like sitting down at a menu and, and, and always ordering the same pizza. You know, you might really like the other stuff. So the key there is where the, and I know this is something you spend a lot of time on, how do the young people themselves learn to reflect and review and, and, and embrace that as an absolute essential skill in any learning, but especially learning that is related to it's not a word I like, but it's related to lifestyle, it's related to activity choices. Um, you know, we talk about, oh, you know, what, what activities do you like? And I think probably the more in, important stuff is, the, is what sits beneath that. Why do you like that? How is it you like moving? What, do, what purposes do you like moving for? And I guess what I'm saying in very simple terms is that it probably is important for, for young people to experience breadth to a range have a, a range of experiences but not necessarily a range of activities you, you can experience a cluster or a family of activities for very different purposes like what does it mean to experience if we take very simple form of movement if we take running what does it mean to experience running as a cross-country race or running as a social health promoting activity and uh, if we don't give those that breadth, then young people learn, I don't like running, because if they're racing, they're going to start too fast, they're going to get headaches, stomach aches, it's going to be generally unpleasant, not everybody's got the, you know, it's, it's a bit like drinking beer, isn't it? It's an acquired taste to, to learn to push yourself physically harder. Is that stage and age of emotionally appropriate for where the kids are at, etc. So um, I'm not sure I answered your question there, Andy, but um, I picked up on some of the things you, you flagged. What I, I am thinking about here is this idea when you talk about learning preferences, to me, if we were to draw a um, vertical line and you have learning preferences on the right, I think what I need to find out about is prior experiences. So it's not their learning preferences per se. It's like, what have your past experiences been like in physical education where have you found the most value? I want to steer clear from saying, what do you like doing? Yeah. yeah. To more, what is it that you found value in in the past? Why is that? Yeah. And then, and, and then frame up the this year, you know, and I, I don't have control over, like, as maybe if my team agrees if, with me because they're teaching, the, uh, the other teachers are teaching the rest of the grade five classes. I might be able to run different units based on what the kids want as a test run, you know, because it's not going to hurt anything. You know? But um, that, that's what I'm just thinking is that idea of really digging into their past experiences and why they value what they value. Yeah, I think, I think that's such a key word, values. And similarly, as professionals, I think the obligation is on us to keep examining what we value. So even if we go back to the conversation about running, um, the language that is commonly used is that the child who can run fast and who can run competitively 
is therefore of higher ability to the child who can learn to commit to running for the reasons that they want to run for, which goes back to our earlier question around what is it that they're meant to be getting from this. And, you know, I, I had the pleasure of listening to your conversation with Scott Kretschmar and, and you know, really keeping the playground alive. And uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that children need to be moving and, uh, and be physically active in the same way that adults do. But if a child can learn playfulness and uh, thrill through, through running, um, non-competitive running, that, that maybe look, maybe it might look very different to how I would go out for a run. They might stop, start, they might sprint, they might go far. They, they could just free run. They might run over obstacles and jump off things. You know, I, I tend not to do that when I run through a park. I think I'd probably look rather odd if I did do that. Um, but that, for, for me, it's that, that attachment, that commitment that then makes someone high ability in physical education or more committed. And that, it's, it's that commitment that's the key if we reach our end goal. And again, that, that's what we tried to, that was one of the real drivers in, in creating our, our app that, it's an opportunity to to reframe what we think success is, and I've got absolutely nothing against uh, youth sport, nothing against it at all. I think it can be the most wonderful uh, experience that young people can have. Um, but I just would question whether all roads should lead there, and all too often, um, so, whether it's knowingly or, or, or unwittingly, the language lower and good and not as good and you know, really referring to they're very able because they can navigate a competitive space. So that's interesting what you're saying because uh, yesterday I, I'm doing some virtual work with some schools in um, Singapore, South Korea and Hungary right now. And I did some planning with one of those teachers yesterday. And they're doing a games unit. And their original thinking was that they wanted to expose the kids to like two or three different sports, four different sports over the nine weeks, and then um, have this transference of skills across the sports. But it very much required the kids to be engaged in small-sided games versus each other. And through our, our dialogue, we came to the conclusion that well, there's probably 30 to 40% of the kids that aren't going to have the skills to participate in a competitive 3v3 game because it's small-sided game because of COVID, right? So the plan that we came up with after about a half hour, maybe 40 minutes of planning was that the kids would select the two sports they, they, the class wants to explore. So there's constraints, right? Um, it's not a free-for-all. And then over the nine weeks... Uh, or eight weeks, they'll do four weeks of one, four weeks of the other. And, and the, the place that they do PE will change. So they're going to move from the basketball court to the field for the second four weeks. So the thinking was that they would explore the sport and then uh, maybe play some small-sided games to start. But after the second week, they will make a decision. Do I want to continue playing competitively in small-sided games? If not... Um, they, they can work on the side on individual skill, skill development in small groups. So they don't have to participate in a 3v3 game. 
So these kids can go off to the side, work in small groups, passing the ball back and forth, and then really reflect on what they found most value in. Was it just hanging out with their friends, kicking the ball back and forth, or was it actually competing and, and uh, developing their skills that way? So this teacher was really open to this new approach and very excited to try it out because it's honoring the student and where they're at. So and that brings in that voice, right? And that's what you're saying is find out what they value. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and we, we run with similar similar themes. Um, you know, we our, it, we we don't in our in our teacher education program we don't prescribe um, uh, an approach, but we do have a default approach. And the default approach in a games lesson, and you know, we we also you know consider Richard Light's work around positive pedagogy and how games pedagogy can be applied to non-games activities. So then we talk a lot to the students about the lesson narrative, which it was really interesting you mentioned around your friend in, in Japan, because the lesson narrative that we worked towards was actually developed when I was doing quite a lot of work in India. And um, I, I was really racking my brains because I was developing curriculum an organization in India that worked in multiple schools and I was working with really great young people um, uh, young teachers and um, um, and the, the curriculum was built on similar themes and values to what we're discussing around ownership and agency and you know constructivism um, and game sense and and, uh, and it there was I, I, I realized pretty soon there was a I don't know if it's a cultural. Is it? There was a mismatch because the the the, the dialogue in, in lessons was very much one way. It was very instructional. So I spent a long time really trying to have to think how do how can I get these really great teachers? And I say great because they're just incredibly willing, great thirst for knowledge. How how can I? get them to actually see what the young people are doing and then to respond to the young people rather than just to run through a script. So I guess that's similar to what you were just touching upon. And and, and so we drew upon, I, I developed a narrative which, you know, I'm not claiming it's, it's, it's rocket science or it's completely original because it's not. I drew upon stuff that I really respect. And so we, we basically said, okay, we're going to set the context. We're going to set a key question the children will, will take part in a contextualised activity, whether that's a small-sided game or completing, um, attempting a routine or a dance routine, or whatever it is that they're doing. But let's just stick to games. So they, they will engage with that small-sided game with a, a, a question of inquiry before they start. We're going to play this game and this is what you're looking for. And minimal instruction at that point. And then post-game, uh, so we call, we now call that our cold task. Post cold task, we re- review and reflect on that key question, and with the young people, we then go into our practice phase where they can isolate the the. Uh, when this is done best, and I've, I've I've seen you know many teachers and training teachers that we work with, you know really take risks with this. When it's done best, they say, okay, so you guys found this part difficult. This group found that so you need slightly different practices to move you on. 
And then we're going to try and wrap it up either in this lesson or in the next lesson. But ideally, if the time allows in this lesson, and we, we go back to that original game and we just see if we feel a little bit better, did our practice work? So the narrative is, is, is there's so many different ways into being successful in that narrative that goes way beyond just re replicating and reproducing what the teacher's telling you to do. It could be the cognition of really trying to design practice or reflect upon practice. It could be the cognition of seeing if if uh, if you're learning in the game or trying to figure out the game. It could, of course, be the skill execution. Um, it could, of course, be the emotional response. It could be the way that you're working with others. All of those things that we constantly flag up as as claims of physical education. How do we bring them to life? And no, I'm, I'm not for a moment advocating that that's the only way to bring that to life. You've just described sort of similar but slightly different uh, methods. Um, but the things that they've got in common is we're not doing unto, we're doing with. Uh, there has to be that voice. There has The narrative has to be dialogic. Um, and there has to be lots of opportunity that comes that goes back to that question how do we, and I think the we is really important there, how do we know if we are making progress? I can know because I'm in a privileged position as a teacher, I'm watching you. How do you know? What's the, what are the success criteria for you and how are they coming to life? And how do we focus on the processes that enable you to be successful, whether that's figuring something out with your teammates, whether it's um, uh, really practicing hard as you described in a breakout session, you know, what does that feel like to really have intense practice? Um, and, you know, that, that sometimes conflicts with a big bone of contention and a big conversation that we have in our office. Does, it, does that always look like fun? Is that fun? And, you know, there's probably another whole conversation there around the place of fun in, in, in PE mm -hmm. um, and in, in youth sport generally. So, um, yeah, lots, lots of lots of themes there that I think are really overlapping with the uh, work that you did with teachers. Yeah, awesome. So, Greg, the uh, listeners who've been listening to really what was the first part because you had to drive your daughter to field hockey, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, and then I had to make lunch for the boys, so two hours later, and we are continuing the conversation. So... You know, we have very similar visions, and I think that's why you and I connected and why I connect so well with Aaron Beatley. And um, I don't think it's just about connecting with people that have the same visions because we can be pushed by people who have different visions, of course. Um, but at this point in my career, what I'm most curious about is how I can continue to um, learn about my teaching in a way that it is, I'm getting feedback from students, really acknowledging uh, where they're at in their journeys with physical activity. And I, I want to learn more right now at this point in my career about the, the conditions that I can create that will allow kids to, to flourish more with physical activity. But if you had to kind of define where you're at right now with your own career, how would you summarize that? Well, um, so I think overall, um, I, I'm in a good place in the sense that I'm enjoying um, lots of aspects of my work. I'm really enjoying, uh, I, I think one of the unforeseen benefits of the global pandemic is some of the new connections that we've 
almost been forced to make or we've been fortunate to make. Um, and that brings with it the sort of learning opportunities that you're talking about. Um, I'm really fortunate and in a good place. I think I'm very excited about where, where we're going with my move. Um, I think we're at a pivotal point with that. The fact that, you know, as a, as a PE teacher, and I, I essentially identify in that role, um, I found myself accidentally in the world of tech and app development and everything that goes with that. That's been a great learning journey. The fact that we took um, a concept and I can now look at my telephone and mobile device and more importantly, I can log on to the back end of the app and I can see tens of thousands of young people's physical activity that you know that really excites me uh, I guess I'm pretty proud of the fact that we've gone on that journey I've, I'm excited and I guess there's a degree of trepidation about where that goes but potentially to be able to give people in our field uh, a whole new way of connecting with their students um, and showing their students that as teachers, we're actually really interested, we're bothered about how you're experiencing physical activity. If, if, the, if the app does what it's designed to do, and the early signs are that it does, um, that it makes people, it, it makes the students better connected to their ecosystem, whether it's in person or digitally, then... Um, you know, I, I would be immensely proud if we can if we can move move the sector on in that way. Um, so yeah, as a career, uh, it's a I guess it's a uh, pivotal time for me. Um, and uh, you know, with any with any transition comes comes a lot of challenges, lots of learning, and uh, and but I think ultimately it's really exciting. If we were to backtrack a little bit and think about the origin of the app, tell us how it began. This is a great segue into learning more about the app, but tell us how it, the idea first came in your mind and then how it um, came about. Yeah, so it, um, I guess it came from wanting to know. Um, I took inspiration from lots of different places, uh, things that I'm intrigued about, to be honest. I took inspiration from uh, f things like Fortnite. I was really intrigued. How does something get such a such traction so quickly? Um, I, I was intrigued and wanted to know more about how young people engage with social media. I was inspired by the work of Vicky Goodyear that's coming out of University of Birmingham about young people, physical activity, health habits, and, and their digital world. Um, and underpinning all of that was, you know, my, I guess my professional lifelong goal of, of trying to move physical education and youth sport and physical activity on to the place where, um, you know, to, to use the, the all-black expression, I'm leaving the shirt in a slightly better place than when I picked the shirt up. And... Um, and, and and with with that desire has you know I'll be honest has come a lot of frustration over the years that I, about not moving things on um, and not seeing things moved on. So I was really intrigued, and as I said earlier, 
it, it, the, the universal goal, you know, the lip service is, oh, kids should be in physical activity. It's a really good thing for them to do. And, uh, and uh, I guess the frustration of not actually knowing or actually having the evidence now we we've we've spoken about Aaron uh, uh, on this call, and uh, we were on a we were on a group conversation, you know. And Aaron flagged up that one of the the big secrets, uh, I think he used a more disparaging term in our world, is that at the end of the day we know very little. We know very little about the impact of our work, and uh, th- there's huge amounts of effort, innovation, um, some really good things happening. There's a huge amount of of money being spent, you know, if I go back to 2012 in London, that was all about inspiring a generation, the Olympic Games. And yet, if we're looking at how do we know if if whatever initiative, product, curriculum design, if any, how do we know what impact it's having in trying to better understand the relationship between what we do with young people and how then young people engage with physical activity? So I guess the app was born out of wanting to know more and to be able to provide the knowledge that, you know, if I look around, so many sectors are knowledge and data driven to be able to make good decisions about their work. And I also wanted to give, uh, to build something that really helps people feel good about their work, both teachers and also young people feel good about their efforts. Um, I, I was, I, I remain highly sceptical about the uh, the widely used blanket threshold of the goal of 60 minutes a day for young people. Um, and it strikes me that any of those one-size-fits-all thresholds can never really support our work because we pick up young people where they're at and our job is to move them on. So I wanted to find a way that, you know, if, if, a, if a young person is engaging in formal or informal activity, and that's another... I guess, disruption within the app. I'm trying to say um, all activity is good activity. So let's capture it. Let's record it. So for people, uh, I'm I'm aware that I've been speaking for a few minutes now about my movement. not even know what it is. Um, So it's just a way that um, schools basically open accounts for their students and the students get on their mobile device and in two weeks' time it will be on a laptop or desktop as well. Um, they can record what activity they did, how long they did it for, where they did it, and how they felt. And it's how they felt, this effective domain, uh, the, the emotional response to the activity that I'm really interested in. And um, to back that up, the, the young people can also free write and they can upload uh, images, photographs, if they want to, to capture the experience. So as teachers, we can log on to the back end of the app and straight away we can connect to the, to the young people. We can really see um, what the experiences have been like. We can see if there's any correlation between in and out of school activity uh, or, or the other way around. Um, so we get to know the students better. We can support them better. We can celebrate better and we can also see the children who are not responding at all to our programs. And I, 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 for me, that's a really big driver. And that should, I hope, support people in asking questions. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at the data on my move and there's, there's cohorts of children who are much more active than other cohorts, so let's take a really typical scenario around uh, gender disparity. 
uh, widely reported around the world that boys would be slightly more active than girls, sometimes much more active than girls. One, if a school is addressed that, they should be have they should have the evidence that my move gives them to absolutely shout really loudly that they're doing a fantastic job. Or if the disparity is is very evident, then that can hopefully trigger questions and trigger professional development about how to adapt and change their provision to meet the needs of, in this case, girls, but it need not be girls, could be any any demographic group, so that it's more relatable, it's more appropriate, um, it's more relevant to those young people's lives. Um, so, yeah, that's an overview of, of where it is and what it does. So what year did you first not develop it, but what year did you first begin to have the idea? About two and a half years ago on a family break watching my children on Instagram and just thinking, I wonder if they ever post their activity and whether their activity is is a conversation. Um, and that's our key word. We keep coming back to my move is an attempt to trigger conversations that are based on some evidence. Um, and those conversations could be teacher to child, it could be teacher to parent, it could be three-way, it could be with coaches, it could be with pastoral teams in the school. But trying to move from physical activity is a nice thing to have in your life to actually let's, let's back ourselves and say we think it's more than nice. It's actually, you know, our goal, our bar should be set that it should be an essential part of young people's lives for the reasons that they want to engage with it, so that we need to have that two-way dialogue that we spoke about earlier. And we need the evidence to see where, where are we taking our wins and where can we do better. So then the app came about, so you came up with the idea and you started to probably toy around with it in your head, maybe during runs, thinking about it, whatever it was, and then start to get serious about it. And, yeah. and then take us through um, how it actually came to fruition. Yeah, so um, it was a really, really steep learning curve. So uh, I, I ran it by my, my, my partner, and uh, she's also in education. And then we learned together to design, to learn about uh, what app developers call the user experience. And, you know, right at the start of this conversation, I was talking about what we can learn from uh, from commerce and from tech. And th this notion, this concept of the user experience, widely used in, in retail and commerce and massively used in tech, I, I, I've really brought it into to my work with, with uh, a university because I think there's, if, if we look at our provisions through the eyes of the the students, which of course is nothing new in that. We've talked, spoken about learner-led education for a long time or co-constructed education. But even if you look at the touch points, you know, pre-COVID, what's it like going into a school uh, locker room? Is that, a, is that a good place? Does that feel great? Um, does it smell great? All of those things, you know, are part of the user experience. So we learned loads about that. We learned to map out the user experience digitally. We then... I then had to get my head around low, like pretty standard business matters around uh, costing the thing, around uh, building a business plan. Uh, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough, this was pretty new to me, even though we had been um, uh, 
running a business for many years before this was very, very different. And uh, and then we had the big challenge of we've got to get the thing funded. And I was amazed at how expensive app development is. It really is uh, requires a significant amount of money. And and that came about as is often the way. You know, we applied for, through the usual channels for funding, uh, for seed funding. And most of that was all rejected. It was too early. It was, you know, we needed to prove concept. And uh, and then by absolute chance, um, uh, I was introduced because by a mutual friend, a guy who I became very good friends with through my work in India, and he introduced us to somebody around a completely different matter. Um, it was actually an education issue. And we got talking and... This particular person had uh, 14 years working in, in venture capital, and uh, uh, and he listened to the uh, he listened to me talk about the app, and he asked some very very good questions, and then he said, "Let's do it." And, and uh, we were immensely grateful, and still are. And you know, we've got a really really good relationship, uh, and he's he made the, he made that possible. So he funded the build. Um, there was no way we would have been able to do that without remortgaging our property. Um, so, yeah, it became a reality. And then uh, we went live in t- September 2019, and uh, it's currently being used in around 22 countries, I think. And um, so we, we're getting a live feed of data from around 50, 55,000 young people. Uh, traction really varies between schools. But um, we've learned loads about how teachers are engaging with the app and how they're energizing and, in, and enthusing about the app and how they're using the data that they're getting. And we've just started a whole new round of upgrades. So we're really pleased with the dashboard that we've now built, which gives uh, teachers can log on and, and literally at a glance can get so much information without having to click through on anything um, around activity rates in their school so I think we're heading in the right direction but we're we're really keen to always be listening and in dialogue we've got a great insight group of teachers who kindly give up some time and energy to give us feedback on pretty much everything we do and they test things and uh, it's it's fascinating it's really fascinating so a few things come to mind when I when I think of everything you just described and when I think of being data-informed and using data uh, to inform our teaching, to inform our professional growth, we have professional inquiries here. So we're set up in a way that we call it the uh, um, PLP, the professional learning process. And what it is is a uh, self-authoring kind of journey that teachers go on with the support of their pedagogical coach. So that's my role as an instructional pedagogical coach. So the teachers set their own professional inquiries based on different data points. So it's not just a hunch. It's not just an interest. Uh, it's like, why do you feel that this is the best inquiry for you? And I'm not in a position to judge that in any way. I just ask the questions and try to facilitate conversation and dialogue around it. Um, so they do a self-assessment based on, it used to be 40 questions, four different areas. I think now we've, we've um, narrowed it down to probably 26 questions total over four different sections. Um, so they do the self-assessment and then they begin to identify a potential area of um, 
that could be a professional inquiry. But then we involve student voice to say, well, how do you know? Why don't we collect some student voice around this? And then we see if it matches up. And they don't have to do that initially. But the whole idea is being data-informed. So everything is data-informed. So then we create a plan together. Um, later on into their inquiry, I might go on and, and do student interviews. I might do observations, collect data, then have a coaching conversation. We analyze, analyze the data, and then that informs their next steps. So why, why I'm saying this is it informs next steps, and this is what you're talking about, yeah. is that you're saying the app can provide information that informs next steps for the, for the teachers. You're saying that the... Um, that just better understanding how people are interfacing with the app is providing next steps for you and your team to further develop it. So it's constantly going back to this idea of being data informed. So let's backtrack even further and talk about Ryan's work again around value. So if teachers are not finding value in the app, they're not going to use it. The school's going to buy it and then say, this is what we're using and push it on teachers, but teachers have to find value in it. Now, yeah. students also have to find value in it because I use Strava, you know? I started to use Strava, and I was right into it. You know, I'm going for my runs, and I'm logging, and then slowly over time, I forget to stop my run. So my run goes on for like four days or three days, whatever it is. But my point is that I even stopped using Strava because I just wasn't connecting with it then i was like i guess i don't really care about my data right now i just i just want to get out there and run listen to podcasts and listen to music so then i go back to no no i need to track my my progress so i have this internal dialogue and conflict within myself i should be using strava i should be using strava to record and i feel this internal pressure so i guess i go back to the purpose of the app yeah. i go back to how how teachers can find how you help teachers find value in it, how yeah. you hope students find value in it. So just take us through that process of trying to be yeah. data informed, but also the reality that if people aren't going to find value in it, they're not going to use it. Yeah. So there, there's a lot there and stuff that we're uh, acutely aware of. Um, so the first thing is the, the data. Um, what, what we're trying to do is, um, is is really streamline the data. I, I think we work in a field that can be particularly confusing. So when we go back even uh, even further steps and we say, well, what what data, what what outcomes is it that we want? And over time, you know, I think teachers, for for whatever reasons, have been forced to evidence their impact through things that I would question are aligned to the long-term goal of supporting children flourishing through physical activity. For example, um, uh, assessing knowledge through uh, theory tests around maybe the benefits of health and um, or, or, or sports science and physiology and anatomy, and I'm not, I'm, I'm genuinely not clear on how that impacts on behaviour. Um, or, so, or a checklist with skill development. Absolutely, absolutely. So, first of all, it was an attempt to say, look, the key data, the data that we should never take our eye off, is are we actually connecting with the students to? 
turn them on to physical activity, to help them fall in love with the moving context. Um, and therefore, the key data is, are they actually moving? Um, and are they then, over time, moving more or moving in a more immersive way or, or, or whatever it is? So it was to try to streamline to go to the important data. The next steps that you mentioned, at the heart of that is, um, you know, I, I'm a qualitative person. I'm not a numbers person at all. I'm really interested in the stories that are going on and the experiences that are being had. But when you're faced with a lots, of, um, lots of students, there needs to be easy, efficient ways to stay connected. And then... Um, and, and behind the numbers are always really good stories. Um, and again, you know, it was something I think Richard Ryan touched upon that when asked who's the most motivational teacher, the thing that students kept coming back to was those that care, those that are really interested in my life. And that is that really resonated with the thinking behind my move because and and just sorry to, to interrupt and those who support my autonomy, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and that's the goal. So, you know, if we're seeing that students are bike riding, horse riding, skateboarding, playing field hockey on a Sunday, then is that information that we want to know? Now that then comes back to your really pertinent point about traction that it has to be valued. So we've steered clear, and I, I would argue the case till I'm blue in the face because the more I look into it, the more I think the obsession with wearable tech is not the way to go with young people. I think it resonates. That, well, I, I've, I've used Garmin for many years, and for me, it works. But to assume that young people are going to be engaging in the, with physical activity in the same way that a middle-aged man who's been active all of his life is going to engage with it and, and assume that you're going to, they're, they're going to find meaning from it. And again, I go back to Vicky Goodyear's work who's suggesting that it can be quite intimidating. It can feel like surveillance and that's something we try and steer really clear of with my move. This is we just keep coming back to celebrate and support. Um, so how do we make it valued by all of the users, be it teachers or students? Well, one, we need to listen. Um, we need to know what their needs are constantly. We need to keep developing the product so it meets those needs. And as I mentioned earlier, that's, that's expensive, so we, we've got to learn how we manage that. Um, so we've just gone through, uh, we've just started fortnightly upgrades and we seem to be moving in the right direction and we're soon going to be making the mobile app much more engaging for young people. And, and we need to listen to them and we've got some schools that give us great feedback. They in turn talk to the students um, and we learn as much about where there's not good traction as where there is good traction. Um, the app has got feedback to us that some young people are able that, that young people can submit so we we see their reviews and stuff um we were at a really early stage so that's priceless for us absolutely priceless feedback so um, can i can i just throw something out to you so as i think about so if i was working at a school let's say in the uk that um 
had uh, subscribed to your app. And the, pr the principal said, okay, this is what you're going to use. The students are going to download it. Uh, they're going to track their activity in PE class, okay? Because I can make them track it. I can make that part of the exit ticket where they have to record their, their movement for the, for the PE lesson. Yeah. What I want to know is, are those kids taking action on being physically active outside? Have I done a good enough job to inspire them to continue with movement? Have I piqued their curiosity? Have I um, given them a bit of hope and purpose and, and whatever you want to call it? I want to know that because then I can, if I see that when I look from the back end, if I see, oh, the kids are actually really engaged and they're yeah. being more active, yeah. then I'm doing something right. And I want to know what I'm doing right. Is it yeah. the language I'm using? Is it the way I set up my class? Is it the routines and structures? So now I would want my principal to base my evaluation yeah. on not what I'm doing wrong and finding weaknesses in my teaching, but be curious about what I'm doing right because the data shows, Andy, that those kids are now 33% more active since they've been taking PE with you. Let's celebrate that and let's really dissect what you're doing in your teaching practice and build on that. And then that's the role of the coach. So that's, that's what I'm saying when data inform. If I'm a teacher using that app, that's the information I'm going to look for because it's going to help me to better understand the pedagogical approaches and strategies that I'm putting into action. But I can't do that alone. I need to partner up with mentor teachers or other teachers or curriculum coordinators to come in and observe me and collect data uh, on different areas of my practice. So um, I see the app actually being a powerful tool to help teachers better understand what it is they're actually doing that's having an impact. Absolutely. And that's also one. So you mentioned 33% more active. We could actually go a little bit deeper into there and say um, uh, we can start dissecting and redefining success in the 20% of your classes who were least active are now slightly more active. So we can focus on our, our weaknesses, our dead spots, the kids who we weren't connecting with and, and figure out how do we adapt our pedagogy or our content to them. The other thing that we're really excited about, and I mentioned the dashboard, the dashboard gives an at-a-glance summary of the emotional responses of the young people. So if there was a new activity, and earlier we mentioned running, and that activity is going to be taught in a unit of whatever it is, six weeks, eight weeks, and in the first couple of weeks, the children are logging that they really don't like running. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's just a very simple tap. How did this feel? And it goes from great down to horrible. And there's a scale of five, I think it is. Is there emojis there for the non-English yeah, speakers? Response. Yeah, yeah, it's really straightforward to use. It's just four taps and the activity is, is submitted. Um, but as I said, the, the most important one uh, is probably how did the activity feel? And as a teacher, if you can show with evidence that by week six, seven, or eight, 
70% of the class rated running as good or better, whereas in weeks one and two, it was horrible or okay, then you've done a fantastic job in taking an activity, really listening, really watching, really engaging and thinking about the user experience, to coin the phrase I used before, and and, and co-constructed that unit with that class in a way that is going to connect. Now, whether that then triggers further running, whether it means that the young people are going to be engaging in park run or whatever it is on the weekend, well, maybe that's the next stage of the conversation. But the first thing is got to be, you know what, running could be a really great thing to do for everyone, not just for the kids who perceive themselves to be particularly athletic or have a somatotype that is built for, for running. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying any of that is easy. I've been there myself for many years. I know that that is a challenging scenario. But if we can evidence it, um, and, and indeed if we evidence it the wrong way, because we're not always going to get it right, if we, if we evidence that, you know what, some of the things we're doing are making kids feel worse about this, then, as you say, it triggers next step questions. And I, I genuinely believe that, almost everyone I've ever worked with wants to do a good job with the young people. So we need that data, I think. So, but then again, I'm just going to um, throw, I don't want to throw a wrench in this conversation, but so then the students start off and they, let's say 48% of students say that they really don't like running 30%, whatever it is. And we know that's pretty universal. That kids really will probably 30 to 40% of the time say, I don't really like running. And then halfway through the unit, you know, we give them that assessment again, and then suddenly they start putting that they like it more. Now, the, the reality is they can feel a pressure to, to say what we want to hear. So sure. then that's on me to present the self-assessment in a way is, please, whatever you do, don't put down what you think that I want to hear. Of course, I want to know that you're enjoying running more, but it's not going to help me be better if you are saying that you're running, that you're enjoying running more when you're actually not, that's not going to help me better design the learning that I want to design for you. Yeah. Right. So I think that's an important thing to consider that the language that teachers use when they present these self-assessments, because the, te- the students can easily say what they think the teachers want to hear. They can easily yeah. say what their parents want them to hear to say so so i just wanted to throw that out and i'm not um challenging you and saying that that this is what's happening students are presenting false data i'm just saying that i'm reflecting about my own practice and the way that i want to deliver self-assessment so i get really authentic feedback from the students yeah does that resonate with you yeah, it completely resonates. Um, and the things that makes uh, that, that we think about in that scenario, some of the things that you mentioned there are, I would argue, are bigger and more important than that running lesson. So there's questions around integrity. Yep. There's questions around the culture that we create. And there's also questions around that real macro issue of how do you learn to reflect and for what reason are you reflecting? So we might ask, well, what's the motivation to log something that doesn't entirely resonate with you, what's not entirely honest? Um, and where, what's motivating you to do that? Now, of course, if it was 
if there were prizes, if there was extrinsic motivation attached to that, then you can sort of go to the root of what might be diverting the young people's attention. But yeah, to try and avoid those conflicts is, a, is, is about creating, creating the right culture within your, I was going to say class, but it's probably bigger than a class, isn't it? And someone in your position probably acutely aware that it's actually a whole school culture that if we are going to take student voice and, and that's, that's got to be meaningful and then working backwards, how do we create the environment and the culture where it's meaningful, it's transparent, the young people know exactly why they're doing that and they've got the skills to reflect as they go along. And they've got the skills to say, actually, this isn't okay for me. And that, yeah. that's absolutely fine. Yeah, and what Richard Ryan was saying, that's what um, fascinated me about the extrinsic motivation piece because I always looked at, and I said this to Richard last week, was I always looked at extrinsic motivation as being stick and carrot only. I never even thought about extrinsic motivation on a continuum with, um, as he describes, external regulation, extrinsic motivation on the far left of that continuum being stick and carrot, then moving to the idea of interjection, regulation, extrinsic motivation, which is kids being guilted or shamed into doing something or seeking, doing it just to seek praise and acknowledgement from the teacher. So that's better than stick and carrot Absolutely. I mean, it's not better that they're guilted and shamed into doing something, but that can come from internally within them. But then moving more towards the internalization side of extrinsic motivation, which is they're beginning to see value in it. And and that's where I'm convinced that that comes from the dialogue and the discussions, the honest and authentic discussions taking place between teachers and students and students and students about their learning in a non-judgmental or evaluative way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to make this a very contemporary conversation and what we've tried to do with my movie is say, look, there's, there's so much conversation about young people in their digital worlds. And all too often those conversations are framed that the digital world is something that is detrimental. And we, we took the part, part of this story and part of my intrigue was the digital world is not going anywhere. Young people are, you know, it is absolutely embedded in their lives and there's lots of work to suggest that there's actually not that stronger barrier between the digital world and the, and the, and the real world. Uh, so how do we use the best of digital to support the sort of outcomes that as physical educators we're very interested in and how do we embrace that? And there is something to be said, and again, this goes back to why we are always going to avoid wearable tech. Because when young people, and this is a huge conversation, but when young people are on Instagram, their perception is that they are in control. Now, we can have a long chat about how Instagram and other social media might play young people. And to be honest, you know, that, that's very complex and I'm only just beginning to get my head around it. But they, they feel that they're in control. They can choose what they post. They can choose what they like. Um, they know who's going to see that post. If we've got the trust in the, in the really positive relationships that so many teachers have with young people, if that trust extends, and it probably will extend into the digital world, so that if... It, there's some, something very secure about uh, 
probably more secure about a child giving feedback on, on via a digital app than there is in person. Some of the some of the emotional pulls that you spoke about uh, are not present when you've got the security of a digital device. So hopefully, and it's early days, but hopefully we will get secure data where the students know that unless, and we're not at this stage yet, at the moment when the children post, it's only the teacher who sees that post. We might get to the stage where if they choose, they could share with their community or their network or their social or their peers, but we're not there yet. So if we've got trust between teacher and student, the integrity and the culture that we spoke about before, that should be reinforced and, and inter, interact with digital trust as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and again, so you're talking, when Kretschmer talked about most of his reading is outside PE now, and, and like you said earlier in this podcast that, you know, the philosophy and, and the different areas that, trend, uh, that are beyond uh, our discipline itself, that's what you're describing right now is really getting to the heart of thinking and um, the things you need to consider to move the app forward. So I, I like that it's not just about the physical activity. As you say, it's, it's a bigger macro idea of integrity and all of these other big ideas that transcend PE itself. So uh, it's been great having the discussion about the app and I, I really look forward to seeing where it goes. And I guess what, where would you say you are in the journey of figuring it out? Less than 5%. Does that give you hope or does it, does it give you Sorry? I was going to say, does that give you hope or does it feel daunting or is it both? Both, absolutely both. But we probably were on like minus 5%. Um, but, you know, we, we at university I used the, uh, I never remember who, who, I think it was Maslow, I might be wrong there, around conscious incompetence, that, that relationship. Um, so, you know, it was this journey where we probably started off unconsciously incompetent and not even knowing what we didn't know and now we're beginning to know some stuff but there's we're also very aware of what we don't know um but we're getting no i'm really really delighted that even at this very early stage um I, i think we're probably getting more live activity data than anything else that I'm aware of. Uh, that's not to say that it's not something out there, but I don't know anything that's given that live stream of, you know, like today's a weekend that we were recording this. And, you know, if I was a teacher on, and indeed, you know, even in the position I'm in, on Monday morning, I can log on to the back end of the app and I can see um, the, the activity data for thousands of young people on a Saturday and a Sunday. Um, now, if some of those young people go into school on a Monday and the teacher, even if it's their, their pastoral teacher, their class teacher, um, can open the conversation with, uh, how was your rock climbing? Uh, how was that round of golf with dad? Yes. Um, you enjoy it. You know, not only are we strengthening those connections, but as an institution, as a school, we're absolutely backing ourselves going uh, in, in saying that 
this physical activity thing is really important and let's talk about it. it uh, there's probably also a degree of accountability there, but that's something we're, we're learning much more about. Um, and yeah. how do you create accountability without the shame that you mentioned before? I was going for a run the other night and um, where I take the kids cycling and the cycling unit, you know, we start in the school and then we move out into the community and there's all these great little, well, they're not great paths. They're just like paths in the desert, Right but there's still some up and down and some slopes and some different types of, even though it's like a sand base, some of the base is really soft. Some is hard. Some is a bit rocky. Um, but I was going for the run and it was about six 30. It was just getting dark. And I saw two kids ride by on their bikes and they were racing. And I thought that, and they, and they, and they, they just gave me a little wave as they went past. And I was like, exactly, exactly what I, what I hoped for. And I couldn't even tell cause it was dark that if I had taught them or not, but they were two of our kids in the older grades that had experienced cycling in that area. And I was like, that's awesome. That's awesome. They're, they're, they're not going from point A to point B because that's so far out of the way that yeah. they chose to go there for that experience. Yeah. So yeah. I just love that idea of these, these kids taking action. And um, so tell me more about what, well, tell the listeners where they, they can find, um, your app? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's um, uh, mymoveapp.com and my is spelt M-I um, so it's M-I-M-O-V-E-A-P-P dot com um, and, uh, and I'm, I could be contacted Greg at mymoveapp.com or Twitter is uh, Greg underscore Dryer Okay, great and I think that's a nice because you're definitely going to be back on my podcast so I think that's a nice place to end it today We've had a great discussion and we were able to really dive deeply into the app and then some some of the other areas that we discussed um, really got me thinking about my own practice and moving forward as well. So so you gave your Twitter handle um, and so people know where to find you. And I'll just conclude this um, conversation with um, last night on one of my runs, I was listening to Angela Duckworth uh, talk about grit, you know, her work around grit. Yeah. And, and I was just at the part where she was talking about that idea, like people who have grit, people who are passionate about what they do, whether it be a hobby or it's interwoven into their profession, whatever it is. Um, these are the people that, you know, when they're making breakfast, they're thinking about their work or they're thinking about their hobby. When they're taking a shower, they're thinking about their hobby. Uh, when they're taking the dog for a walk, you know, it's not incessant, but it's kind of always there, right? Um, where are you on that spectrum? Gosh, Andy, that's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to answer because I'm not sure what Angela was saying on that podcast. Sometimes I'm not sure that where I am on that spectrum is is healthy. It feels okay to me. Yeah. Um, I think there's big issues with letting go. Um, I, interestingly, and it's another conversation we could have another time, but I don't listen to anything when I run. and because, But then my mind would always go to, well, whatever it is I want to be thinking about. So where am I on that spectrum? I'm, I'm probably right at the edge of that spectrum. Uh, you know, I might wake up in the night and have to scribble down something. And but you know, there's a really positive part of that that I, I really, 
enjoy and enthuse about what, what it is we're trying to do and what we're learning on the way. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think well, it's downside. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting because that's how I feel about my own work. You know, and everything you just described is is me. Sometimes I think it's it's not good that I'm thinking about these things when I should just be enjoying my surroundings, whatever it is. But I think the creative minds and the innovative minds always operate this way, you know, and they always are just on that edge of being um, really captivated with, with what it is they're working on. So, I mean, that's for me, that's, that's very prevalent in my life. So, uh, but anyways, yeah, thank you for today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, future discussions with you. Indeed. Thanks so much. Really good to see you. You too. So just stay in line. I'm going to close out the show. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Greg Dreyer. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.